Okay, let's see if I can uh, – oh, welcome back. Excuse me. I don't want to start out here without saying anything about the second hour. That's the first thing you need to know. We're going to crank it up. This is Tony Beam with Christian uh, Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam, and we're heading into second hour here. Uh, I need to get a, a text message off to Drew McKissick to see if he is coming on the show. Uh, let's see here. Are you calling in? Today, that ought to be enough to give him a little bit of a prompt, and if not, we'll move along. And of course, I know that Senator Graham is going to call in this morning at eight thirty because I've already I had a conversation with him yesterday. All right, um, let's see what else is out there while we're waiting uh, to see what uh, Drew McKissick is going to do. There's a there was an article a couple of days ago at National Review that caught my attention because I had already been called uh, to, it had already been called to my attention that Carl Henry wrote a book back in 1947 called The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism that challenged evangelicals to go beyond saying what we are against and to be very vocal in saying what we were for and to demonstrate that evangelicals had the ability to influence the culture for good, not just by, again, preaching against things, but by being positive in the culture about the things that we're able to accomplish that make things better for everybody. And he said these things back in 1947, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. Um, it's a message for evangelicals of that day that I think is important for us in this day. You know, if the church becomes known only for what it prohibits, if the church is known primarily as a place that has a strict set of rules that if you don't comply, then you're on the outside, not only the outside of the church, but you're on the outside of God's grace and the outside of what God is doing in the world— and, and there's certainly—I I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. I'm not going soft here. There's certainly um, a, a place for the church to raise and hold to a standard. But at the same time that that standard is being put forth, the church needs to be proactive in the way that it's trying to impact the culture by proclaiming God's grace and demonstrating it by caring for the people um, that are in need by demonstrating our compassion. Um, I've, I've given a lot of examples of this. You know, I've talked a lot about California becoming a sanctuary state for abortion. I've talked a lot about corporations that are, uh, you know, basically giving, giving women an opportunity to, to they'll pay for their abortions if they need to have an abortion. There are some corporations now that are just flat out because they're so upset that there's a possibility that women would not be able to get an abortion, not be able to kill their baby, that they're just going to pay for the abortions for their employees when they want to have them. Um, it's another way for corporate America to stick its thumb in the eye of Christian conservatives and conservatives in general, people who believe that life has a purpose and a meaning. It's not just something that you snuff out when it's inconvenient. So the, I tried to point out, this was probably about 
four months ago that there were a couple of corporations that instead of simply railing against the corporations that were paying for abortions for their employees, they began to put policies in place to encourage women to choose life. In other words, if, if a woman was in a situation where she felt like she needed to have an abortion, the company would pay all the expenses associated with having the baby. The company would give the woman time, time off, which already most corporations do. They give time off after a person has a baby. They get maternity leave of some description. But the companies, these companies said, no, we're going to do more than that. We're going to lean in and help these women take care of their babies. And we make that promise to them so that they'll choose life rather than choosing an abortion. And to me, this is what it means for the church. This is the kind of attitude that we need to demonstrate in the church. We need to theologically make the argument that life begins at conception and talk about that from a biblical standpoint, teach it to our people, get them, encourage them to become active politically, that is, voting, uh, contacting their elected representatives, letting them know what their thoughts are with respect. We've talked about that before. But at the same time, the church should have programs in place that help women who are considering abortion because they don't have, they're not going to have a place to stay if they have the baby. Uh, they, they can't afford to have the baby. They're going to lose their job if they have the baby. They don't. I mean, there are a whole lot of reasons that a woman will choose abortion when she would really rather have the baby, but she feels like she's being forced into a position where that is, in her mind, the only option. And women should be able to turn to the church for solutions, not feel condemned and not turn to the church because they don't want to hear a, the, the, the lecture about why they got pregnant or any of that. They, if, if they felt like they could come to the church and the church would hold the standard of life, but at the same time lean in to help those women be able to have the baby, then that's making a positive difference in the culture. Now, how does that relate back to um, this, this book that was written 75 years ago by Carl Henry, who's one of the more influential evangelicals of the 20th century? Well, let me just read a little bit of this piece at National Review because I think it's important. Joseph LeConte is the author. For Henry, the post-war years brought the needs of the culture into focus. The 1940s so this saw the start of the civil rights movement as African Americans returned from war to confront racial segregation, massive labor strikes, including a rail strike that triggered the intervention of federal troops, the formation of the United Nations to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which of course has been a total failure, and the international trials at Nuremberg the, the startling revelations of what took place in Nazi Germany, the atrocities that took place there. As Henry observed, American fundamentalism had adopted habits of thought that isolated the Christian message from the central debates of the modern world. 
the broader evangelical movement, he warned, was in danger of making the same mistake. He called a meeting with more than 100 evangelical pastors and asked how many of them in the previous six months had preached a sermon addressing the problem such as aggressive warfare, racial hatred and intolerance, or exploitation of labor, and not a single person had. Now, again, let me be clear. I'm not suggesting that the church abandoned truth or the preaching of the truth. But the church needs to be engaged and involved in the central debates of the day, offering solutions, helping to move toward biblical solutions that include the gospel of grace as well as the judgment of God. And one of those places is immigration. I've, I've talked about that this morning when I gave you the startling numbers of how bad the situation is at the border. The church has a role to play. We need to raise our voices about the conditions at the border, not only that people are pouring across the border, but that they're being treated inhumanely. And we need to have we need to be people of faith who are bringing solutions to the table that include compassion and recognizing that people are created in the image of God. We can't just simply rail against illegal immigrants and turn them into things instead of people. That's not a biblical response. We also have a responsibility when it comes to sexuality to put forth a, a sexual ethic that matches biblical truth. We need to help the world, our culture, to understand why sex has gotten out of control, why the sexual revolution of the 60s has led to people not even being able to determine whether they're male or female in the 2020s. This is something that the church should do, but we're not going to do it by simply yelling about it at people. We're going to do it by building relationships and letting the gospel, the truth of the gospel, be transformational in people's lives, stepping in and leaning into the debate, always holding up the standard that is biblical, but at the same time demonstrating concern over those who are caught up in the midst of a lot of lies that they're being told right now by the medical community when it relates to sexuality. So the balance that Carl Henry was calling for is the church being the church to set the standard biblically, but also being the church in the sense that it's involved deeply in the, the big issues of the day, addressing those issues with compassion, but also with the truth. And I, I think if we don't do that, the church is going to continue to fail to change the culture. The culture will get transformed, in my mind, when people who are followers of Jesus Christ engage it, speaking the truth in love, demonstrating the compassion of Christ to the world at the same time that we're holding up the standard that Jesus taught. Those two things have to happen at the same time, or we just become a bunch of people that are over in the corner over here yelling at everybody else. And that's not going to change the culture or help the world or advance the gospel. Uh, all right, there's a story at Daily Signal today about Governor DeSantis exposing the Marxist slant of African American, an African American history course that is being put forth for um, high schoolers. And of course, this is causing all kinds of problems uh, with progressives there. 
uh, yowling and screaming that DeSantis is a racist, that Florida is uh, undermining racial progression. You've got um, just and, – and none of that is true. Um, let me just read a little bit this, of, of this to you. This is written today by Lindsey Burke and Mike Gonzalez over at the Daily Signal. Uh, the White House and NPR liberals – shilling for it on the public dime, slammed DeSantis for this decision to push back on this new course in African-American studies. But the course was indeed more Marxism masquerading as ethnic studies. It is incomprehensible to see that this is what this ban, or this block to be more specific, that DeSantis has put forward. If you think about the study of black Americans, that is what he wants to block said a very irate Kareen Jean-Pierre, the White House spokesperson, um, who just went off on DeSantis and the state of Florida, by the way, uh, because she's decided that he's racist because he wants to block this course. And, and, and look, it is in the White House's advantage to condemn the leadership of Florida, of the state of Florida. I don't see how it's in the White House's advantage to attack Floridians as being racist because they put Governor DeSantis in office. Yeah, If you want to go after DeSantis, if you want to go after the leadership, yeah, Democrats are going to try to undermine him because of the job that he's doing in Florida, because of the way that Florida has been moved from a purple state to a deep red state under DeSantis' leadership. And they also are going to want to go after DeSantis because they see him as a potential rival to run against President Biden in 2024. We don't know what DeSantis is going to do yet, but it's a possibility that he would be a presidential contender. I think if he gets in the race, it becomes a race between him and Donald Trump at this point among Republicans. So here's... Here's what's really happening in Florida public schools. Students in Florida public schools are taught a good deal of African-American history, learning about and getting an appreciation for the likes of Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, Harriet Tubman, Mary McLeod Bethune, and many other African-American leaders and historical figures. They learn about freedom movements, slavery, Reconstruction. They learn about Jim Crow laws, all as part of the state requirement for schools to teach African-American history. There's an African-American history task force managed by the state commissioner of education with recognition for school districts that do an exemplary job of teaching the, stub the, the subject. In fact, Florida statute 1003.42-H requires public schools to teach the history of African-Americans, including the history of African peoples, before the political conflicts that led to the development of slavery, the passage to America, the enslavement experience, abolition, and the contributions of African-Americans to society. That's in Florida law. So to pretend that because Governor DeSantis is calling into question a, a, a curriculum that was written by college professors who are woke and all in on the Black Lives Matter movement and are trying to turn the study of, of black history into a political movement. For him to push back against that doesn't mean that the state of Florida is not concerned about, nor does it mean they're not teaching black history and black studies. They are, by statute. 
And once again, the Biden administration is lying to you to undermine DeSantis' leadership in the state of Florida. What schools in Florida don't want to teach is communism. And that's what DeSantis is trying to guard against. DeSantis just rejected a pilot advanced placement African-American history class designed by the college board, and this is the same people that brought us Common Core, putting significant pressure on the college board to rethink its approach to the course, as first reported by Stanley Kurtz at National Review. The pilot program seeks to have students read the pearls of wisdom that come from the likes of radical communist Angela Davis, who as a Black Panther was on the FBI's most wanted list and later ran as vice president on the U.S. Communist Party ticket. Now, is that, is that what high school students need to, to know about? Her thoughts, also included in the late in, in the is the late radical feminist Gloria Jean Watkins, who went by the pen name Bell Hooks, also a Marxist, and readings on black queer studies, which teach students to use a black studies lens that shifts sexuality studies towards racial analysis. So black queer studies is what is included in this for high school students. Now, this sounds like a lot of the nonsense that comes out of a public school college curriculums, and I want to be clear to make sure that we're talking about public colleges. Places like North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference, are not involved in this nonsense. But a lot of public colleges are. And on the college level, Parents get to decide if they want to send tuition dollars to public institutions that teach this Tommy Rot to the students that are going to school there. But in the public school, it's a different story. I mean, this would be taught to all um, 9th through 12th graders in the state of Florida. And Ron DeSantis says, you know what? We've got a good thing going down here. We've got black history being taught by statute. We've got studies going on. We've got a commission set up to make sure that those studies are being carried out in, a, in the right way, acknowledging school districts that are exemplary and getting those studies across. We don't need another course introduced that introduces communism as a, 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 a foundation of black studies. Also included in the course's instructional focus are the origins, mission, and global influence of, you got it, the Black Lives Matter movement and the movement for black lives. These are two interconnected groups put together by the Marxist Alicia Garza. Um, and it's basically teaching students in high school in Florida that the Black Lives Matter movement has some kind of validity. They were the the essentially the moving force behind behind the riots in 2020 that burned a lot of American property that caused people to die in riots that ensued after the George Floyd incident, which by the way, when Chavin was convicted convicted in court of of uh, attempted murder, or not attempted murder, but murder of George Floyd and sent to jail, it was the racial issue was never on the table. Nobody mentioned race. It was not spoken in the courtroom. And so this whole thing that the Black Lives Matter movement sprang forth from turned out to not be a racial issue at, at all when it comes to the law. 
And yet now there are those who want to turn Florida high schools into a platform to promote the Black Lives Matter movement. And, of course, if you if you haven't seen Daily Wire's documentary on the Black Lives Matter movement, you need to go subscribe and look at it because it shows the, the grift, the amount of money that's been raised, the way that the Black Lives Matter movement has spent millions of dollars on an expensive home for the, the leader. I mean, it's a it, it just like what we were talking about earlier with Time's Up, it's a scam that gets people to give money so that a small group of people uh, can have a lot of money. And it hasn't really advanced at all the cause of African Americans. I mean, the, the Black Lives Matter movement was the force behind defunding the police. And even now, and now Democrats even admit that that's a bad idea because of what it does specifically in black neighborhoods. It lowers the security of people in those neighborhoods when you have a, a reduced police force. So in any event, um, this is that when you hear this stuff about Ron DeSantis, you know, I just know that it, it's all a bunch of hoo-ha. And the good news is that DeSantis, as governor of Florida, is willing to take on these issues. I mean, how many governors do you know that know what the curriculum is that's being pushed on their state and comes out and takes such a forceful stand and says, we're not going to have this in Florida, which is one of the reasons Florida has shifted from a purple state to a deep red state, and it'll continue to build on that success as long as we have someone like Governor DeSantis leading in the manner that he does. All right, thanks for listening to uh, the second hour this morning. We want to welcome to the program uh, right now special guest, Senator Lindsey Graham. Senator, I want to thank you uh, for taking the time to come to the Proudly Pro-Life weekend. Uh, just a couple of weekends ago, you've always been faithful to come to that event and speak to us and encourage us about what it means to be pro-life and uh, on behalf of Palmetto Family and even South Carolina Citizens for Life, my good friend, Lisa Van Riper, I know she'd want me to tell you thank you publicly for that. Well, I enjoy it. Get to visit a lot of old friends and a worthy cause and uh, good fun and good meal. You know, I'm, I'm starting to fall into that category of being an old friend. You know, I was when we when you first started, I was kind of a young young guy, and now I'm now I've been around long enough. We've both been around long enough for it to be old friends. So, uh, well, we I appreciate are old that. friends, and you know, I think God willing, there's some good years left in both of us. Well, I hope so. Let's talk about your trip to the Ukraine. I know that um, you, okay. you you you've been correct, and right. you've come back, and so you've got a lot to tell us about the situation on the ground there. Okay, well, good. Uh, number one, I met with President Zelensky and his team. Uh, he's sort of the Churchill of our time. you got to remember that Russia invaded the Ukraine in 2014. They took the Crimea that was part of Ukraine and claimed it for their own. The world kind of objected but didn't do a whole lot. So Putin saw that as weakness. Eleven months ago today, Putin invaded Ukraine, trying to destroy the the Ukrainian people as a people, trying to make it part of Russia. And uh, the military leadership in Washington said they'd last four days. Eleven months later, the Ukrainians are fighting like tigers. The Russian army is falling apart. What does it matter to you? If Ukraine succumbs to the Russian invasion, 
Putin will continue to take land in Europe. Borders won't matter anymore. The Chinese are watching closely. If we let Putin get away with this, then there goes Taiwan, which is a great ally where most of the semiconductors in the world are made. 94% something like that. Yeah. 90, it is so, 90% plus yep. of semiconductor semiconductors come right. from Taiwan and that I mean that powers everything that you can think whatever you're thinking about right now there's probably a semiconductor involved somehow so <laughs> well from a washing machine to a cell phone to your television to everything so right. you don't want to entice China so here's what Ukraine's been able to do in the last 11 months through bravery and determination uh, they proved that the Russian army is a paper tiger so now, 11 months later, they need tanks this large, the Russians. The goal is to kick Russia out of Ukraine, not to invade Russia, not to start World War III. You can't let Putin intimidate you when it comes to doing the right thing. So we're in an impasse with heavy tanks from Germany and the United States. I am convinced the Ukrainians can beat the Russians in the east, and stop the new offensive. Without the tanks, this war is going to keep going on. The Biden administration has yet to embrace the goal of Ukraine winning on the battlefield. They have one foot in, one foot out. Zelensky is never going to give an inch to the Russians. They'll fight to the last person to beat the Russian invaders, and with our help, they can win. No American soldiers, no German soldiers. They're not asking for our soldiers. They're asking for economic and military assistance to win a war against Putin that we can't afford to lose as a world. So when the Germans are reluctant to give the tanks that would matter, it really upsets me. This is a chance for Germany to be a force for good. So I am hopeful and more convinced than ever that the Germans and the United States will yield to the pressure, provide the tanks, the German tanks and the Abram tanks from the U.S., to the Ukrainian military soon so they can end this war in Ukraine. So is the United States putting pressure on Germany to supply the tanks without a commitment to supply our tanks to the to the war, or are they just right yeah. now, is, is, is all that going on or not? Yeah, there's a lot going on right now. This morning, Poland made a request to the Germans to take the German tank owned by Poland, the Leopard tank, and give it to Ukraine. They're trying to get permission uh, from the technology owner, the Germans. So they're putting pressure on Germany. I just did an interview on a major German newspaper. This is the first time since the end of World War II that the spotlight's on Germany. They could be a force for good. We can't let Putin's bluster threats uh, keep us from doing the right thing. The American refusal to send Abrams tanks has been used by Germany and others as a reason not to send their tanks. There's some truth that the Abrams tank is not the best fit for the battle in Ukraine. It's not about that to me. If we sent a handful of American tanks to Abrams tanks, like the British did, the Challenger tank, it would put all the pressure on Germany, it would break the logjam, then we would flow hundreds of German-made tanks into Ukraine so they can stop the offensive and dislodge uh, the Russians. So at the end of the day, the Biden administration has been slow to embrace winning this thing. They're always looking for an off-ramp. There is no off-ramp until Russia is expelled uh, from Ukraine. Right. So your meetings with Zelensky and his team have confirmed to you 
that there's no way that the Ukrainians are going to back down until the Russians back out. Is that? Is that uh, I can't say it literally any better. You need to make that a bumper sticker. Okay. They're not going to back down until the Russians back out. We we made a mistake in 2014 by being weak. China is watching everything we're doing. Putin will go for other parts of Europe that he considers to be part of the Russian Empire. But I've seen Zelensky numerous times. I met with their military leadership. I've talked to people on the streets. I am in awe of their determination, their willingness to die for their freedom and their sovereignty. you got to remember 1998, after the fall of the Soviet Union, Ukraine had the third largest nuclear force in the world. They gave up their nukes to Russia with an agreement by Russia, Britain, and the United States. Their sovereignty right. would be respected and be honored. And Crimea was part of uh, Ukraine. So along comes Putin, who's tearing that agreement up. Sounds a lot like World War II, doesn't it? You make promises, you break them. The Ukrainians, I am telling you to your listeners, pray for these people. The Ukrainian uh, nation is a strong Christian nation. The Russian Orthodox Church is an arm of Putin. The Ukrainian Orthodox Church has been one of the strongest supporter of supporters of freedom in Ukraine. What happens in Ukraine matters to us, and we cannot let Putin get away with this. They're not going to give in. They're going to beat the Russians with our help. Is Republican support in Washington starting to go a little bit soft on the continuing to support the Ukrainians? I mean, I hear reports about that yeah. occasionally. Uh, do you see that happening? Not really. I think we're still the party of Ronald Reagan, right? You know, uh, that's my party. Putin, yeah, Putin's evil, okay? He's raping women, the military is, uh, on an industrial scale. They're uh, bombing innocent civilians, war crimes by the thousands. To forgive and forget would say that everything we believe in since World War II was a joke. So there are people in the Republican Party. There's always an isolationist wing. There's people wanted to pull out of Afghanistan. We shouldn't be there any longer. How well did that turn out? We didn't need 100,000 troops in Afghanistan. We needed some to keep the terrorists at bay. So you saw this in World War II. What happens in Europe doesn't matter to us. Anytime a thug and a war criminal like Putin tries to take land owned by others through the force of arms and you do nothing about it, you set in motion chaos. Right. So here's what I believe, that the Republican Party will stand up for Ukraine's ability to defend their homeland. We need to know more about where the money goes and have some accountability. Count me in for that. I met with our generals. They're very impressed with how the Ukrainians are using the weapons. We're accounting for the weapons. There's corruption in Ukraine. There's corruption here at home. That is no reason not to support a war effort that is directly related to our national security. So here's what I think. I think the Republican Party will continue to support sending weapons and assistance to Ukraine, not soldiers, to fight the fight against the Russians. And I cannot stress enough to the people who are listening, if Putin gets away with this, and nothing happens to him, and he's able to dismember the UK, Ukraine, he will not stop. That's his words, not mine. And there goes Taiwan, and the Iranians are watching. This is right. a huge moment in world history. We've got to get it right, and I am confident that we're going to continue to support Ukraine because to, to bail out on Ukraine is to bail out on your own national security. 
Let's shift gears for a minute and talk a little bit about the pro-life issue. I just got back from uh, D.C., spent several days at the Stand for Life Leadership Conference, which was excellent. And I was there for at least the beginning of the March for Life. I I drove to Washington, so I had to get out before 3 o'clock or I was going to be there looking for a hotel room um, for another night. But in any event, I listened to all the speakers as I was headed home. And I, I really was impressed with the first March for Life post-Roe. I know when you came to the Proudly Pro-Life Dinner, you talked about your goal on the federal level to get abortion right. limited to 15 weeks. And in a room full of pro-lifers who most want to see abortion cut way back from that, I, I, I think it was it was not enthusiastically received. So I wanted to give you a chance to talk about that and to talk about why you believe that's important. Well, number one, uh, is this a state's rights issue? Yes. What would you say? Oh, it is. Well, it is at the moment, but in the broader scope of things, in the same way that slavery, when we tried to make it a state's rights issue, that didn't work out too well because we were talking about okay, human so let, life. Right. So let me say to your listeners emphatically, it is a human right issue. Right. It doesn't matter where you're conceived, if whether it's California or New York. As the baby develops, over time, as the baby develops, it can feel pain, right? That's correct. It gets to be viable before birth. So the question for the United States, are we going to treat the pro-life issue as a state issue and not understand that the baby at 15 weeks can feel pain no matter where the baby exists? And in California and New York, they're allowing abortion on demand up to the moment of birth. Right. We need to be in the mainstream of civilized world. I am going to advocate until I no longer can advocate that when it comes to the unborn, they have a voice in Washington, that we should have a national minimum standard of 15 weeks. At that point in the birthing process, we know the baby can feel pain. You you provide anesthesia for the child uh, to make sure when you try to operate it on, on the child to save its life, it doesn't feel the pain of the operation. Can you imagine how it must be to be dismembered at 15 weeks? So what am I saying? I am saying that there is a role for the federal government uh, post-OBS, post-ROW, that the court said it's up to state and federal legislators to define the rights of the unborn. We have a six-week heartbeat bill in South Carolina. I hope it makes it. But I am going to be advocating a national minimum standard. States can be more restrictive. Right. But at 15 weeks, no matter where you are born or where you're conceived, we're going to limit abortion except for rape, incest, life of the mother. I am confident that people want to do more. I understand it. I think 15 weeks puts us within the mainstream of the civilized world, Iran and North Korea, um, uh, allow abortion on demand up to the moment of birth. Most European nations begin to live in abortion at the 14-15 week period. Um, so here, that's what I think. I think nationally, as a minimum standard, states can do more. We should be advocating for 15 weeks because the baby can feel pain. Uh, they may come a day we can do more. But right now, right. I think that's the consensus position to take. 
and the alternative is to abandon the unborn in Washington or push something that has no chance of success. I think a 15-week national ban, states can do more if they like, is the best way to keep the pro-life movement alive in Washington. Well, we have to keep uh, a sight of what's politically possible because we live in a constitutional republic and some things can't get passed. I mean, we've seen in South Carolina what happens with H5399. When you take an all-or-nothing approach, it's great when you get it all. It's pretty bad when you end up with nothing because here we sit— in South Carolina, with a 22-week 20, uh, abortion ban. I mean, that's it. You, you can have an abortion up to 22 well, well, weeks. Well, Tony, at 22 weeks, the baby, you know, their people actually survive, you know, right. that, you know, that survive. So what am, I, what am I saying? I am not going to give in to the idea that the unborn child is a state's rights issue. It is a human rights issue, like slavery. Some states uh, tried to incorporate slavery, and other states allow, you know, African-Americans to be free. That was morally wrong. It is morally wrong, in my view, for the United States to allow abortion on demand up to the moment of birth. Uh, That is not where we need to be as a people. And Democrats have introduced legislation to overturn every pro-life law in America to create a national law allowing abortion on demand up to the moment of birth, we need to challenge that with some alternative. And to me, the alternative that makes most sense is 15 weeks pain-capable. Senator, it's always good to talk to you. Appreciate you taking this much time with us today. And uh, we just um, pray for you continually, that you'll continue um, to lead in Washington and uh, continue to gain favor in that regard. So thank you, sir, for joining us. God bless. God bless you. Uh, all right, a uh, couple of uh, other stories that we're kind of tracking today. Um, this story came out, let's see, it's been about two or three days ago. Uh, the New York Post has picked it up now, um, and it's a, it's a story about religious liberty. It's a question about whether or not people can put on display their religious beliefs if they're not actively going about trying to proselytize to back it up. And the question comes down from the Mall of America, where a man last week was ordered by security guards to remove his T-shirt that said on the front, it said, Jesus saves. On the back, it said, Jesus is the only way. And the man was confronted by mall security. Uh, By the way, the the T-shirt also had um, on the back, down at the bottom, it had a coexist symbol that, of course, represents peace among different religions. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the coexist symbol because if, if Jesus is the only way, then coexist is suggesting not only should all these religions get along, but that religions that don't agree that there are multiple ways to get to heaven uh, should be somehow excluded. I don't know anybody, and and I may just not know them, so I'm going to put that caveat out there. But I don't know anybody that puts a coexist sticker on their car that wants to include a real discussion about Christianity, since Christianity, by excluding people who don't follow Jesus Christ, is considered to be um, oppressive in some manner. But anyway, security guards told the man 
that other shoppers at the mall in Bloomington, Minnesota, you were talking about the Mall of America, said that they were offended by the shirt. Quote, Jesus is associated with religion and it's offending people, one of the guards told him. The man tried to reason with the, with the guards, telling them that he didn't speak or say anything to anyone in terms of preaching. Now, something to go along with this is that this man, uh, a couple of, you know, prior was asked to leave the mall because he was proselytizing. In other words, he was talking to people. He was going up to people and witnessing to them and talking to them about, their, about his faith. And so he was asked to leave, and he left. Now, he comes back. He's not doing that anymore. He recognizes, okay, they're not going to let me have a verbal witness, but I can wear this shirt and just walk around, and people can see the witness. I kind of become a walking billboard. Spokesperson for the Mall of America told the Daily Mail that one week prior to the T-shirt incident, again, the man was issued 24-hour trespass for soliciting guests. The mall policy forbids picketing, demonstrating, soliciting, protesting, or petitioning on the premises. Now, it's private property. They've got the right to do that. If they don't want somebody coming into the mall, uh, this is this would be considered, you know, p- political uh, picketing is prohibited. Uh, People can't come in and advocate for a particular political candidate, and they're not supposed to come in and proselytize. So the security guard said, look, this is religious soliciting. There's no soliciting allowed on the mall property. It's private property. And he added, the, the guard was telling him that we're getting complaints from people who are who have been offended. Uh, the guard told him, so I'm going to give you a couple of options. He said, you can take your shirt off, you can go to Macy's, and you can do your shopping. Now, apparently, the guy had on like a long sleeve shirt, and then he had this T-shirt over the top. So the guard said, take the T-shirt off, and you can do what you want to do, or you can leave the mall. Well, after this interaction, the end result was the security guards backed off and allowed him to keep the shirt on. So he went about his business and wasn't, in the end, forced. But but here's the thing that I would say about that. Um, I'm glad that it ended up with the security guards realizing that this was a free speech issue. This didn't have anything to do with soliciting. It didn't have anything to do with proselytizing. This was a man who was telling people what he believed on a T-shirt. He wasn't disturbing anybody. People may disagree with the T-shirt, but I mean, how many people go to the Mall of America in rainbow T-shirts promoting a gay agenda, the LGBTQ agenda, or their their way of thinking, and I'm sure that they're never asked to leave the mall. I mean, that's just, that wouldn't even enter into to, to the mind of the security guard, because that would be homophobia and people would go nuts. But I'm thankful that this is a guy who stood his ground and said, look, I'm not doing anything that violates mall policy. I have a Second Amendment right to display what I believe is right and true without pushing it on anybody. And he was allowed to stay and, and, have, and have his shirt. But here we are at a time in America when he would even be confronted. That's a problem. That's an indicator that Christianity is under scrutiny. Um, 
and, and we can debate about whether that's the right way to go about going into the mall. I mean, actually, I think anybody has the right to, to have a shirt that says Jesus saves and Jesus is the only way. Um, I, I, I don't think that hurts anybody, and it does promote a message that's true according to the Word of God. So I, I applaud him for standing up for his rights, and I'm glad that he didn't have to back down. And at the end of the day, they realized that they couldn't stifle his Second Amendment right, or excuse me, First Amendment right to free speech. All right, have a great day. I'll see you in the morning, 7 o'clock.